Every parent has heard the screams of their child, it's not fair. Or perhaps you've screamed it from your heart as well, it's not fair. But what does it mean to be fair? What is fairness? Is it fair that all seniors, regardless of income, get senior discounts? Is it fair that a few are spread out in first class while others are sit cramped in economy seats in an airplane? Is it fair that additional money will be spent on specially designed playground equipment for only a few disabled children? In a fascinating article by Dr. Arthur Dobrin about fairness, he proposes three different ideas about fairness. The first idea is sameness. This is the fairness where everything is equal, so everyone pays the same price for a theater ticket, whether a child or an adult or senior citizen. No one has more than another. Everyone eats or no one does, for example. Logically, then, an infant or an adolescent will receive the same amount of food. It doesn't matter that one may need more than the other. Fairness is finding the average and applying it across the board. This is fairness as equity of outcome. The second type of fairness is deservedness. In this notion of fairness, you get what you deserve. If you work hard, you succeed and you keep what you earn. Fairness means keeping what you deserve and deserving nothing if it isn't earned. The hardest working, most diligent, smartest, and most talented should have more because of their attributes. The lazy, the indifferent, the stupid, the inept deserve to have less. Fairness is a rational calculation. This is fairness as individual freedom. The third idea of fairness has to do with need. In this third idea of fairness, it is those who have more to give should give a greater percentage of what they have to help others who are unable to contribute much, if anything at all. This is the Spider-Man motto, to whom much is given, much is expected. Fairness here takes into account the fact that humans have obligations to one another, and the more one has, the more that is demanded of that person to contribute to the common good. Fairness and responsibility are linked. Compassion plays a role in the calculation of fairness. This is fairness as social justice. The complexities and differences in definitions of fairness are revealed every day, perhaps like in the school system. Should schools spend the same on every child as implied by fairness number one? Or should the budget provide more money and resources to help the brightest and most talented as implied by fairness number two? Another option, one that is increasingly dominating the spending in education, is to allocate the greatest resources to children with the greatest needs, those in special education as implied by fairness number three. Where should public funds be spent? Should schools be concerned with the average student, the children with the greatest potential, or the students with the greatest needs? And this plays out even in churches. Should churches spend time equally on everyone, or those that are the most gifted and the most talented in the Lord's kingdom, that they can do the most potential to advance the kingdom of God? Or should the church be focused on those perhaps on the fringe of faith? As you can see, while we scream for fairness, we can't even agree on what is fair. As we look at our lives and look around us at the lives of others, we also want to scream to God, it's not fair. And my friends, unless we come to terms with the fact that life is not fair from our perspective and the fact that God does indeed treat us fairly, we will become very bitter and angry. We will become angry and bitter at God because we feel that life is not fair and He hasn't treated us fairly. 
This is such an important life lesson that Jesus speaks a parable about this very issue. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. We're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. I read now verses 1 to 5 of Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And when he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. Here in this parable, we have a landowner who needs workers for his field. So he goes out to hire some workers. He finds a few day laborers, perhaps around sunrise, around 6 a.m. at the marketplace, and they agree for a denarius a day to work in his field. And that's the kind of the going rate at the time of Jesus, for a denarius a day. Now, for the sake of easy remembering and contextualizing for us to understand, let's say they agree to a thousand pesos for a day's worth of work. That's more than enough compensation, a thousand pesos a day. The Bible tells us while this owner was in the marketplace, he sees around nine o'clock that there are some day laborers doing nothing, and he asks them if they want a job. They agree to work in the vineyard for a fair day's wage. He does the same at around 12 noon and around 3 p.m., and he gets more workers. And then something happens. Look at verse 6 and 7. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. Then at around 5 p.m., towards the end of the day, perhaps only an hour of work left as the sun is setting, the owner finds some more workers who aren't doing anything. And he asks them, What are you doing, just hanging out, not working? And they mentioned to him that no one has hired us. So the owner says, I'll hire you. Are you willing to work? I'll pay you what's right. And they gladly wanted to make at least a day worthwhile, and they went to work, even if it was only for an hour. Look at verses 8 and 9. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. So at the end of the workday, they gathered the day laborers and started with the last who started work at 5 p.m. And the Bible tells us the owner gave those people who only perhaps worked an hour a denarius, a thousand pesos. Why so much for only an hour's worth of work? We don't know. Perhaps the owner was feeling very generous and simply wanted to give them that much. And he went through the group that came from the last to the beginning, the group that came at 3, the group that came at 12, and then at 9 a.m., presumably giving also each of them a thousand pesos. And then we get to the first group who started working at the start of the day at around 6 a.m. Look at verse 10. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. The Bible tells us the group that started working at around 6 a.m. thought that as they've seen that everyone else got a thousand pesos, a denarius, that they would get more because they were there since the beginning of the workday. Now, I want to stop here and I want to point out something. This is an assumption. 
It was conceived only in their own mind. They were defining for the owner what constituted fairness. They saw the guys who worked for an hour, three hours, five hours, get a denarius, a thousand pesos. And when they also, who had worked many hours, received also a thousand pesos, they complained. Look at verses 11 and 12. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. They complained to the owner, Here we have been working for more than 12 hours in the heat of the day, but you give to the guys who only worked one hour the very same thing. Their complaint, it is not fair. Now let me stop here, and without reading ahead and knowing how the owner responds, how many of you would completely understand the complaints of the one who worked for 12 hours? You can raise your hands virtually. The Bible tells us they complained. I would have complained. How in the world can I who worked 12 hours in the heat of the day get 1,000 pesos, and the guy who only worked an hour also get 1,000 pesos? If I was in their position, I would also complain to the owner. It was a very natural response. And I think if we were all honest with ourselves, we would all do the same thing and complain. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. And when you read it, it makes your blood boil because you can totally identify with these people because you've been in that situation. Now let's look at the answer of the owner. From the answer of the owner who represents God, we can see how God operates. And when we see how God operates, we can draw out some principles for how we can find fairness in life. Look at verse 13. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for Denarius? Notice how the owner calls them friends. He's not antagonistic towards them. God understands that this is a very common and natural complaint. But he asked them this question, did I do anything wrong to you? Was I unfair to you? And the answer, of course, is no. We agreed on a thousand pesos for a day's worth of work, and that's what I paid you, the owner said. It's fair. We agreed for a denarius, a thousand pesos, and that is what I have fairly paid you. You see, from this we can draw out our first principle, number one. God deals fairly with each person individually. Learn to be content. God deals fairly with each person individually. Learn to be content. You know, He created us unique. There are no two same people. Each of us are unique physically, for sure. No one has the same retina. He gives each of us a unique plan. No two people's plan are the same. Isn't that wonderful? God has created us uniquely with a different life paths. We are not a copy of someone else. And if we're not a copy of someone else's life, then doesn't it stand to reason that how He deals with us is as individuals. And that's true. The Bible tells us we're responsible for our own sin, not the sins of our Father. We are responsible for our own life. And when we look at our life without comparing ourselves to others, then, in fact, we will be content. The problem of why we're not content is that we begin to compare. You know, here in Asia, I'm so content with my height of 5 foot 10 because, on average, I'm taller than almost everyone else here in Asia. But in America, I'm not so content because it seems like that my 5 foot 10 height is on average shorter than everyone else in America. Here in Asia, 
I feel like a giant with my weight of 130, 40, 50 pounds, while everyone seems to have an average weight here of about 170, 80 pounds. But in America, I'm very content because it seems like everyone in Texas weighs more than 300 pounds. So height-wise, living in Asia is great, but weight-wise, living in America is better. So I'm torn between where I should live, in Asia or in America. But it's funny, the only reason we're discontent is because we compare. We forgot that God has uniquely created us without comparing ourselves with other people and their lifestyles. It would seem that God does deal with us rather fairly. Look at our lives. Do we have anything to complain about? Do we have anything to complain to God about if we don't compare with what other people have? That's why often salaries are held in secret or held with great confidentiality. Not because it's the world's greatest secret, but because once you find out what someone else is making, then you quickly begin to compare. And at that moment, you are no longer satisfied with what you make. You look at them and you say, I do more than that other person. Why are they making more than me? I work more hours. Why does that executive make more than me? Pastors are not immune from this as well. Once we find out what other pastors from other churches make, we begin to compare. I pastor a larger church. Why am I making less than other pastors with a smaller church? So we have to ask ourselves the question, did we get or will we get what we deserve without looking at what others are getting? Because when you look at someone else, for sure, you will always say you didn't get what you deserve. But if we look at how God has treated us only in the silo of our own lives, then we will affirm that God has been fair to us. Note what I just said. I said, we'll get in the life to come. Because a lot of people are thinking, you know, God isn't very fair. In this lifetime, I have physical ailments. I have a sickness. I have a handicap. But you know, the Bible tells us that when He deals in fairness with us individually, it's with regards to this life and in the life to come. So for sure, when we think about the promise of the incorruptible resurrected body, for example, that helps us understand that life will become fair because we will all receive a body that is incorruptible without any sickness or disability. Some who are living in poverty and find that they don't even have enough money to go on a vacation may think that life is very much unfair until they remember the riches of glory that is promised to them in their eternal inheritance. The result of understanding this truth is that we learn to be content. These life truths should bring forth a tangible response and action, the realization that God is indeed fair when He treats us as individuals, which then precipitates contentment. Some of you learning to be content need to get off social media. You see, you are content with your vacation to Baguio until you see someone else's pictures of them going to Paris. You are content with your yummy turon or yummy barbecue stick until you see a picture of someone else eating their Wagyu ribeye steak. I think you understand what I'm talking about. Now look with me at verse 14. Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Here the Bible tells us, God says, take your thousand pesos that we've agreed on. But if I want to give this worker who worked only an hour the same amount, that's my prerogative because it is based on my grace. 
This shows that God, number two, deals with each person graciously, meaning getting what we do not deserve. God deals with each person graciously. Learn to not compare. God deals with each person graciously. Learn to not compare. The man who worked for one hour did not deserve to get the same amount as the one who worked for 12 hours in the heat of the day. But yet that was what was given to him by the owner. We call that grace. My friends, you and I are the recipient of God's grace. When we look at our lives honestly and ask ourselves the question, do we deserve what we have? The answer is no. You and I do not deserve what we have in this life. Now, I know that some of us may think we got a lucky break or we worked hard and we have what we deserve. But in reality, most of us had a head start. We were born into money. We were born into something. It wasn't like we started off like our forefathers from China where we had to come and work really hard. Many of us already had the means to start a living. We weren't living in poverty. We had a great break to begin life. That is because of grace. Now, it's not something you should feel guilty about. It's just to show you that God is gracious to us. We got what we did not deserve. Now, some of you may argue that God has never been gracious to me in my life. If you think like that, then you've forgotten about God's gracious gift through His Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation is a gracious act from God. He gives each of us undeserving people an opportunity to receive eternal life through the death of His Son, something we certainly do not deserve. Romans 6.23 reminds us, the wages of sin is death. We deserve death. We receive life. That is grace. It is because of the greatest unfairness in life that we also receive the greatest unfairness in our life, which is that we received everything in our favor when we don't deserve it. That's grace. Let me repeat that. That's important to understand. It is because of this greatest unfairness of life when the sinless Son of God died on our behalf that we receive the greatest unfairness in our life, that we who are deserving of death receive life, that we have received everything in our favor which we don't deserve. That's grace. Now, if God deals with us graciously, then our response in action is that we learn not to compare. Because grace cannot be compared. You can't compare grace. If God graciously gives to all, which He does, then it is an impossibility to compare what both did not deserve in the first place. Let me give you an example. Let's say there were two beggars who were very hungry. They had not eaten for three days, and they were begging on the street. And you happened to have gone through a drive through at KFC, and you were really hungry, and so you got two buckets of chicken. Your car happened to stop at a stoplight where these two beggars were, and they knocked on your window, and you looked at them, and you felt compassion towards them. They looked so hungry. And so you rolled down your window, and you reached into the bucket of chicken without looking, and you grabbed two pieces, and you handed a piece to each one of them. What would be your reaction if one of the beggars looked at his chicken piece and looked at his friend's chicken piece and said, hey, my friend got a bigger piece. Please give me another chicken. You would say, well, that would be silly. In fact, if that happened, I'm sure as the driver, you would get angry. You'd say, you should be happy with the piece I gave you. Both should be happy because they had not eaten for three days 
and here a kind driver gives them a piece of chicken. But imagine comparing what they did not deserve, per se. You say, well, that's silly. We would never do that. We would always accept what was graciously given to us. Well, you know, my friends, we play the same game all the time. We play the comparison game all the time. Why didn't God give me a bigger house? I want a bigger house. I went to my friend's house. He got a bigger house, a newer house. Or we say, Lord, why didn't you give me a newer car, a more luxurious car? We play this game where we begin to compare our blessings with other people's blessings. And it makes no sense. And God must be shaking His head, wondering why in the world would we do this? He graciously gives to us, graciously gives to us, and we begin to compare His grace. For those of you that don't know me, I grew up loving cars. As a young person, I had posters of sports cars in my room. You can ask my parents. Posters of Lamborghinis and of Porsches. But we could never afford those types of cars because we were a pastor's family. In college, as a working student, I had self-sustained myself since the age of 17. I drove an old jalopy of a car, a 15-year-old minivan that barely ran, and thankfully had air conditioning in the brutal Texas heat. But I went to a university on scholarship where most everyone was really rich. And if you go to the parking garage, these 18-year-olds were driving around in BMW 8 Series, Mercedes CLKs, Porsches. And there I would park my rundown car. I would look at their car, then look at mine and say, someday I will make it in life and I will drive one of these nice cars. Well, fast forward more than 20 years later, would any of you look at me and say, I think, Pastor, you haven't made it in life because you don't drive one of those luxury cars. I'm driving an Innova, but I'm content. But I'm reminded that I should be happy with what I have. Because just like in college, I have a car that runs. may not be the nicest car, but it runs and is air-conditioned in the oppressive heat of the Philippines. Unlike others who have to take public transportation and have to wait hours in our Metro Manila MRT or LRT stations, I have my own car. God is indeed gracious. And if we remember that God treats us graciously, then we learn not to compare. And if you do really want to compare, remember... Compare down instead of comparing up and see all of the blessings that you have in life. Now look with me at verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? Here in verse 15, there's another truth about God, a very specific reminder that God owns everything and therefore it is His. And if it's His, He gets to decide and choose how He distributes it. We can't demand something to be given us when nothing really belongs to us. And therefore, what we already have is fair and gracious for us. And if you forget principles one and two, go back and review it. Now, you may argue with me that you do own certain things. You've worked hard for it. You've paid for it. And my point to you is if you really own it, then you can take it with you when you die. But we all know we can't take it with us when we die. So really, it's borrowed. God loans it to us for our stewardship. And if He loans it to us, if He lends it to us, then it is up to Him what He gives us. That means God can choose to give to anyone anything He wants 
as He is sovereign, and it is not for us to question. I hope you agree with this statement. You know, let me give you an example. Henry C., at one time the richest man in the Philippines, he's passed away a few years ago. Did any of you have a say in how he distributed his money? Did any of you say, you know, I'm sorry, Henry, you forgot to give me some of your money? Or let's say hypothetically, he did give some of you his money. Would you dare say, I'm sorry, I didn't get as much as your son, Hansi. You know, I bought a lot of stuff from SM. I deserve more. Of course not. We wouldn't say those things because that is ridiculous. Henry C. owes us nothing. But that's exactly what we do with God almost every day. God, you didn't give me enough. You didn't give me anything. Would you underline that phrase in verse 15 to remind you of this truth about God's prerogative in giving us things? My own things, God says. They're my own things. And so if they're mine, I get to choose to give them to you. And if we really believe that everything belongs to God and it's rightfully His, then His appropriation of those things to us is fair and by His grace. And you know, when God gives us things, the Bible tells us in James chapter 1, verse 17, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. That which He gives us is good and perfect for our needs. So let's put it all together, the third principle. God has the right to give what He desires, and it comes from a good heart. It comes from His good heart for our best. So we need to learn to trust. God has a right to give what He desires, and it comes from His good heart for our best. So we learn to trust. We need to learn to trust did you ever stop and consider that God chooses at times to withhold things from us because it is for our good? Perhaps it's so that we won't get greedy, so that it won't take our focus away from Him, or perhaps because He knows that what we want is not good for us. He has something better planned for us. Did you ever wonder why God doesn't give us what we want when we want it the first time we ask it? Perhaps it's for our best. If you know my life story, you will know that if I got everything from God the moment I asked for it, then I wouldn't be married to my wonderful wife, Cindy. I wouldn't be a pastor. I wouldn't even be here in the Philippines. And I'm certain I wouldn't have the great life I'm having now. But I praise God now that He didn't give me what I wanted the first time I asked for it because He had something better planned for me. God has the right to give what He desires, and it comes from His good heart for my best, our best, so we need to learn the lesson of trust. I'm sure you've read many stories about people who won the lottery and wish they never won it in the first place. I'm reminded of a man by the name of Bud Post from Pennsylvania who won $22 million in 1988, and he said it ruined his life. He said, I wish it never happened. It was a total nightmare. I was much happier when I was broke. Can you imagine regretting winning $22 million? Well, here's what happened to his life. When he won $22 million in the lottery, his brother hired a hitman to kill him in the hopes of getting his hands on the millions. The murder attempt failed. Then Bud Post was successfully sued by his landowner, 
and part-time girlfriend for a third of those winnings. He blew the rest on terrible business deals, lavish purchases, and multiple marriages. Eventually, he ended his life living on food stamps to survive. In 2006, at the age of 66, this seven-time married father of nine died broke and estranged from most of his family. My friends, God gives you just enough for what you need. Why would you ever doubt that the one who gave up his son, Jesus Christ, for your life would withhold from you anything in this life if it wasn't good for you to have it? Think about this. Learn to trust. The Bible tells us we are to trust, not to try to understand, because if we try to understand, it doesn't make sense. We just need to be assured that the one who was willing to give up his son to purchase our life, to call us his child, will give us his best. Finally, look at verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. God, the landowner in this story, the Bible tells us, will settle all accounts. Some who are very rich and prominent will find their standing in heaven quite low. And others who are humble and poor may find their standing quite high. The Lord gets to decide, not based on our fairness, but based on His fairness, the fairness of the one who sees all and knows all and is all-powerful. And since we can't even figure out how to define fairness in our lives, let the only truly fair person in the world decide, the one who is righteous and just in His character, the one who sees all. My friends, fairness is not in a result. Fairness is found in a person. In the meantime, as we live this life, when we are tempted to think that life is not fair, we need to learn to be content because He deals with us individually and He deals with us fairly. We need to learn not to compare because He deals with us graciously and we cannot compare grace. And we need to learn to trust because He gives us what He desires from His good heart for our good. And so as you're looking for fairness in life, look to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who suffered the greatest unfairness in life to give us the greatest unfairness of our lives, which is eternal life and salvation, which we do not deserve. And from that perspective, let us see that God does in fact deal with us fairly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your people would stop saying it's not fair. When we think about your grace, when we think about how you treat us individually and uniquely created us, when we think about your best given to us from your own resources, how can we even utter those words, it's not fair? But Lord, I know that as we look from our perspective, life often doesn't seem very fair. But you call us to trust you, not to understand. You call us to be content. So I pray that your people will indeed be content because we are the recipients of your grace. For those who are struggling with this issue, may the Holy Spirit enlighten and allow your word to encourage them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.